Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting, all sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grid. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Livery, European Poker Tour champion, World Series of Poker champion. She has over 3.8 million in live earnings. She's also the co-founder of Raising for Effective Giving, aka REG, a charity that's raised millions of dollars for the most effective charities in the world. She's also a well-known speaker, writer, and YouTube host. Her TED Talk on Life Lessons from Poker has over 3 million views. Today, Liv is going to talk to us about a hand with A7 Aussuit from the UK Millions in 2020. Liv, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's really cool. You brought me a hand with um, A7 Aussuit. That's that's a that's a really good one to click off the grid. A lot of those raggy aces are are not easy for people to come up with memorable hands for. So I'm really glad you picked this hand. Um, can you set it up for us? When did it take place? Um, so it actually happened the last time. Uh, it was the last hand of live poker I've played, um, which was last year. Um, I think when was it? Oh, was it? I know it was a few months ago. Time, time has lost all meaning. Obviously, what with quarantine and stuff, it was a few months ago, and it was literally on the direct bubble of the Party Poker Millions. Um, it, it was the first time I played live since the World Series. So, um, as as you may know, and probably some of your listeners might know, um, I've now sort of retired from po- playing poker, basically. Um, and I've certainly just become like a, a an occasional but enthusiastic amateur when, when I play. Um, and the reason why I wanted to pick this hand is because it was like basically the way the hand went down, it really like made me appreciate that I am no longer playing as a professional. It, it exposed to me like it was like a mirror to me of like, huh. Okay, I'm not. I'm nowhere near as good as I used to be. I'm. I'm very much out of practice. And poker is not a game that you can just be like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm just not going to play for a year and then come back to and expect that you'll just be like jumping back on the horse. You know, like it's not like riding a bike. It is a game that you will become rusty. Which is why I thought this was an interesting one to talk about. So yeah, in terms of the actual situation, it was uh, as I said, right on the direct bubble of this big 10k party poker millions. Um, I was like really excited, like, oh, I, I wasn't the shortest stack, I, but I, I mean, I wasn't super deep either. I had like, uh, I think like 18 or 19 big blinds and the button opens, uh, who'd been pretty active and I have a seven offsuits in the big blind. And so now it's an interesting sort of decision. Like, do you, do you rejam it here? Like I'm ahead of his range for sure. But at the same time, do I want to take that really high variance line? You know, I'm right on the bubble, et cetera. Um, and so I decided to call. 
and after like running it through uh running it through my my simulator aka Igor um the <laughs> he's my my oracle uh he has agreed it is better to 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 just call because of the bubble otherwise it'd normally be a jam um and then it comes ace king deuce with a flush draw i don't have um i don't have a heart and it was a heart draw and i check and he bets now here again like i could take the higher variance route i could just check jam get it in um or i check call i decided to check call seems reasonable and now the turn's interesting the turn brings the jack of hearts uh so ace king sorry what was the block ace king deuce i think turn jack of hearts completing the flush draw completing a straight you know queen 10 makes a straight and so on and i check and he bets again and Instead of doing the reasonable thing, seeing as I've been taking a low variance line this whole time, you'd think that I would continue with that low variance line and call again. But instead, I decided to check jam. Um, and he unfortunately had the Queen 10 for the Broadway, snapped me off, and I bubbled on the live stream, very embarrassed, very annoyed. And I walked away just sort of scratching my head like, ha, huh, I didn't think that through at all. I just like... I just panicked and felt like, oh, well, I don't want to get blasted off this hand and I still should be ahead. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just going to I'm just going to do this because I don't want to get pushed around, which is just like archetypal amateur thinking. And it made me laugh because I was like, huh, this 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 is like it was almost like a nice sort of like close to a chapter of my life, a 10 year chapter of my life where, you know, I really cared about sort of being not only like being the best player I could be, but also being perceived as being the best player that I could be. Um, and now I'm like, huh, I, I just really can't do that anymore. And that's okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was just like this really like sort of self-reflective moment where I, I got to be like, Hey, you know, this is not my, this is not my main thing anymore. And I made an enormous blunder and that's completely okay. That's a great realization. Like how long did it take you from being super annoyed at yourself to being like, oh, this is actually an interesting lesson that I'm no longer a poker professional? Uh, it took me about two days, I'd say, a day or two. I was certainly annoyed that evening. You know, I remember going back to the hotel and just being like, oh, why, why did I do that? And, um, and then sort of just being in a bad mood the next day, I just, you know, I was getting on with some other work in the hotel room while Eagle was playing another tournament. But then it was like, the day after that, when I was just like, wait, there, there's some good that can come out of this. This is like a, you know, I'd, I'd had this sort of like identity attachment for, for being known as, you know, as a top professional. You know, I don't know that I think I've been a top professional for quite a long time. But the point is, is that like my ego had been very firmly attached to that idea, at least in the past. And it still lingeringly was like holding on to that as this, as this sort of way that I view myself and yeah it was just it's like I was just sitting there in the hotel room thinking about it and it was like it was just like a letting go of something this this picture of myself that I'd held the, you know of what I considered who I would hold in high esteem you know I would only respect myself if I was still a good poker player and then I was like wait why do I why why is that a sort of a benchmark that I need to hold myself to it's not what I do anymore like I'm doing tons of other stuff which is actually I'm finding much more challenging and intellectually stimulating uh, why would I let this sort of old me affect how what I think about myself? You know, this this old these old goals still affect um, my vision of myself. That's so interesting because it reminds me kind of the way that like poker is becoming more like chess in a in a way where we can measure our decisions based on like what a solver or an oracle mm -hmm. thinks of them and. 
you have this sense that like somehow your brain is being constantly measured. And since what you do is brain related, that's why you're doing these videos about science and math and, you know, culture and, and uh, current events. Um, so it seems like that might be one of the reasons why you have this connection mm-hmm. between, you know, playing as well as possible and then, you know, your self-worth. But you were able to to work through that. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I'm sure I'm not enlightened enough. And if I do end up playing something again and I make a mistake again, which, you know, is more likely than not to happen, that I will still, you know, I'll be able to go, oh, that's okay. You know, I'll still have the annoyance. I think it's certainly part of my personality to be like extremely sort of competitive and to expect strong performance in any given sort of competitive situation. And I think that's true of most poker players. I think it's sort of, you know, the population of poker players selects for that attribute in, in people's personalities in general. But yeah, I would like to think that maybe I, I won't spend a, a day and a half being annoyed at myself about it next time. I'll be able to brush it off quicker. And I think that's an important skill that you need, in, especially in tournament poker. Um, but I mean, in any in any, any poker game you're playing, you know, if you screw up a hand, it's hard to not be annoyed at yourself for a period of time. But there's a big difference between being annoyed at yourself for six hours and six minutes. And if you can bring that sort of lag time down to where you get back to sort of an, uh, an emotionally calm state, that's only going to be beneficial for your game. How do you feel like you should have played this hand or when you were playing more actively, how do you think you would have played it? I mean, it's a tough spot either way on the turn, right? Like you're on the bubble, you're playing against a player who's who's got a much bigger stack, who's been you know abusing the table effectively. Um, there's nothing wrong with playing the low variance pre-flop and flop uh, line that I took. It's hard to fold that turn as well, even though a lot of draws get there. So you should probably just call, turn again, and then decide river. If the river comes a brick, when well, I've got you know a really tough decision, if it comes another really drawy horrible card, well, you can probably check fold and and um, you know be left with sort of what what I've been left with like ten big blinds, which is still enough to you know there were still shorter stacks um, on such a big twenty k bubble. But I think old me perhaps was being a bit more aggressive might have just jammed it pre. But Eagle says that is actually incorrect given the given the, the extreme bubble dynamics. So. Um, it's hard to say. The point is, is that old me would have thought through the turn much, much more deeply. And it seems, you know, of, of all the options, we know that folding was best, but in a vacuum, probably calling is best. But out of the three, jamming is the worst. And the point is, is that I would not have made that decision. I would have, I would have not chosen the worst one out of the three. <laughs> right, right. To recap, the flop was ace of hearts, brick of hearts, king. And after the action went check call, the turn came, the jack of hearts, completing the potential heart flush. I really love that you picked this hand because I feel like for a lot of amateur players and, you know, even professional players, like this is like the kind of nightmare situation where you have, you're in on the exact bubble against somebody who's been abusing the table, as you say, and you flop um, an ace, no kicker, and the draws start to come through. And you know, he can just be continuing to barrel and jamming the river with almost anything, knowing that you will probably end up folding that ace on the river unless you know you get two pair. Right. Like I can understand why people get so stressed in these situations because it does feel like maybe calling preflop, do some people feel uncomfortable with that because they feel like they're basically, you know, trips or two pair mining. If you end up, you know, playing against a very aggressive player and always folding um, top pair, no kicker by the river. That's the difficulty. I mean, if you're not comfortable calling down with, with one pair, for three more streets, then you're probably better just to take the higher variance route and get it in pre anyway. Especially, you know, you like you just can't be making that big of a mistake um, when they're opening 
on the bubble on the button presumably like 70 percent plus hands you you know you're miles ahead of their range with a7 off so closing your eyes and getting it in is it just can't be that bad and if you know if they happen to have you dominated then it's just you know extremely unlucky but um the more gto play in this in this situation was to just defend so i'm told but i haven't been doing much uh, work with with uh solvers in a long time so I'm not best qualified to, to, to say that. And his bet on the turn wasn't especially big. So you could have, yeah, I can see you could have check called and then, you know, check. It's a very um, unpleasant situation on the bubble for sure. And it's a leveling war, of course. The trouble is, again, with, with check jamming turn there, it's what are you ever getting called by that you are beating? Basically nothing. And, you know, that's that's one of the most fundamental thinking tools you need to develop when you're when you're starting out in poker. It's like when I'm when you bet, why are you betting and what hands are you going to get called by and which hands are you folding out? And if it's only going to be the case where you're only getting called by hands that are better than yours and you're folding out all the, the worst hands, then you shouldn't be betting, or at least it's, it's very unlikely you should be. And that was like the thing that I just failed to think about. I just sort of got into this like white noise, you know, it's, I, I consulted my brain and there was just nothing there. It was just like, you know, the emotions were firing and I, I was excited and and a little nervous and uh, I just <laughs> just just stuffed it in because I didn't want to get pushed around. <laughs> That's so um so interesting because so much of her work is about like emotions and intuition and how um, they sometimes get in the way from people making purely rational decisions, right? And and I think the bubble in particular in poker is one area where humans struggle the most with that because it's such an emotional moment, especially live poker. I mean, no matter how successful you've been and how much money you have, and I'm, I'm imagining a min cash in this event was not life-changing for you, although, you know, there's lots of people who play 10Ks where it could be, if not life-changing, year-changing, right, to make, yeah. you know, that min cash in a 10K, um, that they potentially satellited into. But even without the financial repercussions, it's still emotional because you put a lot of effort, right? Right. You've been playing for a number of days. And do you really want to be that person that everyone is like secretly rooting to bust? And everybody, there's, there's like, it's not just like a, a quiet, you know, busting is already annoying enough. Busting before the money is already annoying enough, but right before the bubble. But when everyone in the room turns around to see who it is and like you even get like a little, like, round of applause in some perverse sort of oh we're sorry patting you on the shoulder but everyone's actually high-fiving as well it's just like just this really grotesque situation emotionally that everyone really wants to avoid and yeah I mean still part of me like cares what my Hendon mod looks like um I mean which is silly now like how you like having any kind of expectations that it's looking good when I'm not playing anymore but it, it's still hard to like eradicate um, I think, you know, the, that scoreboard um, that so many tawny players like hold in high esteem, you know, what their caches are for that year, how many, you know, how many final tables they've made and that sort of thing. And it, so, yeah, it does hurt. I think also about the bubble, it's interesting that it's not quite as easy. And I mean, um, potentially I have to get Igor on the grid sometime to counter this, but it seems that it's a little bit more difficult to model than other poker situations because, you know, it's hard to see exactly what everybody has in each table and that could change like Absolutely. the math quite a lot. And most of the programs out there on the market aren't really that well designed to do exact bubble calcs. Usually they might do like final table ICM really well, but not necessarily 69 out of 70 or something. No, exactly. If you've got, yeah, 69 players left and there's, you need to 
technically you'll need to input every single person's exact stack, which you is information you're never going to have. So um, yeah, they, they're, they're going to become more and more fuzzy and approximate. That And that allows the emotions to really take hold. And I, I guess people can go one of two ways in the bubble um, where they could be so emotionally attached to the result that they fold everything or so emo- emotionally attached to people perceiving them as folding everything that they then go bananas. When the math is less clear, then we, we're sort of almost left with no choice but to sort of go with our with our instincts. You know, it's it's hard to do the the analysis work because you, you just you don't have um, any any specific hard data to to be based off. So now you yeah you have to fall back on what your sort of past experiences were, and and you know that's what our intuitions are really. They're our, our, our instincts. They're just a sort of sum of our past experiences that come to mind in in an unconscious way. So we don't know why we feel that we should do this or do that. We just do. And as you said, because there's sort of all these extra layers of of things at stake, you know, sort of our own identities that we're attached to, whether or not it's, you know, the idea of like not cashing is the worst thing in the world or whether it's being seen to be being pushed around is the worst thing in the world. That's going to show itself through whatever our instincts want us to do even being aware of it, it's still hard. You still then, so you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I, I'm aware of the fact that I'm someone who hates to be pushed around. So I expect my instincts are going to be over-adjusting for that. So then you try and scale them back. But how do you do that? Like, okay, well, my instinct feels like 80% confident that I should rejam here. So I guess I'm going to like only do it 60% of the time. I mean, it's really hard to quantify that. How, you know, how do you even do that? So um, yeah, it's a tricky one. When you play very actively, both online and live, what do you get that sense of with how people were dealing with their emotions in the bubble? Um, And also from like your high roller career and friendship, which direction were people generally leaning on? I think it entirely depends. Like, I mean, something like the million dollar Triton event, you know, which Igor ended up stone bubbling. Um, it's been a great year <laughs> for us. Um, I know that in that instance, almost every player at the table appreciates the gravity of that million dollar, with perhaps the exception of someone like Bryn, of that that million dollar cash, and would probably be more affected by just you know not not being the not being the bubble boy, um, as opposed to caring about whether they're being pushed around. I think um, that I think pride is is less uh, is less important in those moments than than just the concern over money. Right. So obviously, the better the player, the more they're more uh, rational they behave. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's the definition of a good player. The go- a good player is someone who just follows what the evidence su- suggests. And in this case, like the evidence should be sort of mathematical, largely. And if you deviate from that too much without really, really good reason, then you're being irrational. Um, and so, you know, if these if these players have sort of run the numbers and, and like ICMYs knows that, you know, know that these are the ranges they should be playing or shouldn't be playing then they're being rational by following that. And even if their emotions are trying to like tell them to do otherwise, um, you know, that that will be what, what defines you to be a good player. And all this emotion tied into the bubble, could you say that for some people it is rational because the reason they're playing poker is not purely financial, but they also want like positive attention and happiness if it's not their full career? I think that trips people up, especially when it comes to something like the WSOP main. Mm. So you could tell them that like rationally they shouldn't shut down, um, you know, for eight levels before the money, but with, you know, a nice stack. But then they would tell you that emotionally by far the most important thing is for them to like, you know, uh, cash and to have that school. Yeah. And tell their friends and their, their minor investors, like maybe they have a bunch of half percent pieces. Yeah. So in this case, the emotion is kind of tied back into the rationality and it's hard to separate it. Yeah, 
I mean, it's just, it's a different metric, basically. You know, like one of the metrics with which to sort of evaluate your poker success is, you know, how much you cash for, you know, how, how, how much you win. Another one is how much fun you have while you're doing it. Um, another one is how well you actually, you know, how smart your decision making was compared to what its maximum potential could be. And all of those, it's a, it, it just depends on what you are optimizing for. And, you know, all the all rational, the term rational means is basically the, by making a rational decision, basically you are optimizing towards whatever, whatever is the best way to achieve your goals. So it just depends. So, so, so this is more a question of just like goal choosing um, than actual rationality. And if your goal is to have that min cash more than anything, if you care about min cashing more than like tripling your money, let's say, then it's absolutely rational to just optimize purely for that. And yeah, like like you said, let's say locking down. Would I ever personally do it? No, but that's not because that's not my goal. It's my goal that if I play the main event is to go as, you know, to, is to win as much money as possible. But that doesn't mean that someone else's goal to optimize to, for a min cash is wrong. Um, it's just, it's down to the individual. But the point is, is that you need to also check in with yourself to, you know, in that goal setting decision that itself, you know, needs to be done in a reasonable way. You know, perhaps if you're so concerned that with satisfying people who have like one or two percent of you, well, maybe it's worth having a conversation beforehand to actually check is that is that what they want too? Because actually, maybe thereafter, they're not happy. They wouldn't be that happy to know that you 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 shut down um, just to ensure that you, they made some money back. Maybe they they wanted you to go go for maximum um, and a more sort of higher variance route. So that's another sort of more specific thing that you might want to sort of check in with yourself beforehand. But if you've done that and you've come to the conclusion that no, min caching is the right thing for you, then it's completely rational to play in, in, in a style that more optimizes for that. That's a great point because, yeah, I think that is actually one of the issues with poker and other things in life. Even if you have this rational view that like you should play a certain way that, you know, you've been studying game theory and that's how you play. If you have all these people in your life who aren't like on board with that plan and are just going to like think it's funny if you, um, you know, not think it's funny, but feel sad if you, you don't min cash, then you're actually, you're kind of, you're, you're hurting yourself and your goals. Exactly. You're working, yeah, you're, yeah, you're working, you're working against yourself or at least you, you're sort of fighting an uphill battle to sort of keep others happy. Um, yeah. And it can be really tricky. I mean, in general, like dealing with backers, I think that causes more stress um, for, you know, historically poker, poker players that I've known than the actual poker itself and vice versa for the people doing the backing that they always seem to be so stressed, just like trying to manage these stables of horses. I mean, it seems to be something that's just less common these days. But I mean, I remember back in the day, I mean, the amount of drama that would come out of all these like errors that, um, you know, inevitably would come up through backing, you know, poorly poorly thought out arrangements um or just like you know un, un unpredictable types of situation trends coming up that no one had thought about and then when it did come up it would cause conflict yeah i don't know it's, it's it's stressful stuff yeah definitely with the advent of re-entry that added like you know oh man <laughs> exponential different possibilities of things things becoming problematic but yeah, you mentioned um backing and makeup and that's actually an example of like the counter of that like somebody you know potentially not caring as much about min caching because they need to like surpass their 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 makeup number um in order to actually get any dollars in their pocket yeah it no you do so much thinking about this rationality and emotions and when they conflict is there anything that kind of reminds you about human behavior in a broader sense and this potential irrationality on the bubble 
I mean, it comes down to just sort of like risk aversion, right? I think we all, depending on what what the particular risk is, we'll, we'll all typically fall somewhere along a spectrum of either like not scared of it at all or absolutely terrified of that thing. And that can really vary from person to person. You know, not to bring it up, but it's, it seems unavoidable to ever not talk about this damn topic, uh, coronavirus, you know, like particularly a couple of months ago when it was all sort of starting to kick off, it, well, it hadn't been like an accepted thing that it was actually spreading. I, you know, I'd, ha- I'd personally been following it since January because I, I'd actually had to go to China to give a talk in early January. So I'd been quite aware of it from that point. And I, and I remember thinking like, oh man, this is going to, I think, I think the world is underestimating this significantly. Sort of being astonished at how much of a range different people had in, in, in face of this threat. Like some people were like, oh my God, this is going to be the end of the world. This is like, we might think, you know, like huge percentages of the world might die, et cetera, et cetera. And like, which I thought was a big overreaction and I still think is an overreaction. But at the other side, we had people literally, you know, like the classic, it's just the flu bros. You know, most of those people have now changed their mind, which is, you know, that's, that's it's fine to be wrong and, and to, to update. There's still some people who are still digging in their heels, uh, which is, I, I find truly astonishing. But, you know, there, there was, it was so interesting, like depending on who you would speak to, the, the range of responses you'd get back. Some people would be like, oh yeah, I, like yeah I, I see definitely the threat here like exponential growth is really bad and then others who are just like they don't seem to understand that how exponential growth works and how you know like what one percent you know let's say a, you know it is actually a, a fatality rate of one percent oh one percent doesn't sound like much you know one percent is a small number why would i worry about that it's like well let's compare it to other risks in life one percent is the equivalent of a, your whole life's worth of driving in in like one go so like an additional lifetime's worth of driving just just from one one horrible disease. And what was interesting is that most poker players were sort of what I would call early adopters in terms of like worrying about uh, coronavirus. Like most of them were like, actually, yeah, I think this is going to be a problem. And I think it's because they're used to thinking about things and risk in a quantified way. And they were able to look and go, yeah, 1%. That's, I've seen a 1% to happen in my life in, in poker too many times. You know, I, it, it doesn't, yeah, it comes in about 1% of the time. That means like one in every 100 people I know roughly are going to die. That's that's bad. I don't, this, this is a bad thing. So can we compare it to, I don't know, do you think we could compare coronavirus to a bubble? Might be a bit too tenuous. <laughs> well, yeah, in a way, being the one unlucky person out of 100 who doesn't cash, you know, of course, it, the, the stakes are way graver. But yeah, yeah, I think that that and knowing that, like, obviously, that's happened to all of us as poker players. And that if that happens to one of our loved ones in a poker tournament, it's like we give them a big hug and get a drink. But, right. you know, when somebody catches coronavirus, can't even do that because, you know, not you can't see them. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, and and I, but but the more obvious um, kind of correlation between coronavirus and poker that everybody seems to be making, which I find really fascinating from an intellectual point of view, is this how it's very difficult for humans to conceptualize exponential growth. That it, you know, it's like yeah. even if you're really smart, it just doesn't come naturally to us as people to you know see that number getting bigger, um, and you really have to right. have charts or metaphors to kind of help you appreciate it. Um, and but w- in poker, you know, we see the pot getting bigger. It's so small pre-flop, and then all of a sudden, you're all in, even though you started the hand with 100 bigs. So that's another thing, maybe that poker players are a little bit more used to. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I, I read recently, which I just loved, which really put exponential growth into into like a picture, which was just like no matter where you are on a, a line of exponential growth. It will always look, if you look behind you, it'll always look incredibly flat. And if you look in front of you, it'll look almost like vertical. And it doesn't matter where you are, like even if you're at the very beginning or at, you know, close, you know, very far advanced in a, in a, in a, in a, 
you know, a thing that's been going on for a very long time growing exponentially. It'll always look, you know, if you were like placed on that graph line, it's, it's like this big vertical cliff in front of you. I think it's, I just found that like visualization pretty cool. But then the curve does end eventually. Like it, it can't, it can't go on forever exponentially. Well, no, of course. No, no, no. Obviously, like, I mean, and I, you know, that was like one of the annoying sort of straw mans that people who are saying that like COVID isn't going to be a big deal. They were like, oh, everyone keeps talking about exponential growth. If it keeps growing exponentially, it'll weigh more than the universe. Like, yeah, obviously we, you know, we know that there's a limit, like it's, it's an S curve. That's how, you know, any, well, most population growth things uh, go. And that the same will go with the virus, you know, eventually, whether through herd immunity or through other means, you know, that growth rate will slow down and eventually it'll sort of plateau out. But the point is, is that we're like, when you're anywhere near the beginning, then it's this sort of exponential, um, this crazy exponential line. Um, so the question is, whereabouts are we on it? It's something for me, actually, you know, when I had Bill Channel on it on the on the grid and he was talking about exponential growth, it's actually kind of relieving for for me because, you know, sometimes it feels like there's no end in sight when you start quarantining and every day seems like the, the next or the last yeah. rather. Um, but you because um, you mentioned as you mentioned this hand, which, you know, at the time of our interview was it was only three months ago. You mentioned it being like a year and a half ago because <laughs> everything oh, really? you, you meant, I think you said like a year ago, but it's like, yeah everything before we kind of shut down seems like so long ago doesn't it yeah it really does no it, it was I, what I can remember whether it was in December or January but I think it was in January now yeah because I'd just come back from China yeah you're right time time has just like ceased to have much meaning um <laughs> just like each day it's just like I I don't know what day of the week it is um it's it's largely irrelevant um but I kind of like it in some ways um someone pointed out that today, you know, that for the first time ever, there is no FOMO. You're not ever, like right now is a very unique time in history where the, you're just really not missing out on anything that's going on right now. You know, there's not some festival going on that you can't go to because of work or there's not some like party of your friends or anything. Like there is, FOMO has ceased to exist. And I, I find that just a really kind of liberating concept as someone who has personally always struggled with FOMO a lot um I hate missing out on anything fun um so it's it's like a real in some ways it's it's quite you know personally relieving um but that's obviously coming from a very like privileged standpoint because I appreciate there's a lot of people out there right now who are just like absolutely you know just trying to survive and it, and it's, it's it must suck yeah, I guess for people for people who have what they need and are around loved ones there's not as much FOMO maybe there's just more gratitude but unfortunately, yeah, some people, it's not even, even not situations where people are, you know, their actual, like, you know, shelter and um, incomes and food are, are insecure, but even just not being, you know, being alone or not being with people that you love, it's got to be like a tough time for that, right? Yeah, it must be so, I, I can't even imagine. But being separated from, yeah, if, you're, if your loved one is, you know, happens to be in another country and they're, they're locked down there or, you know, if you're a teenager and you've got, you know, you're young, you're in young love, but your boyfriend or girlfriend is locked down at their parents' house and you can't see each other. There's supposed to be so many people struggling and not having what they need with them right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's hope the it ends. It at least loosens up soon. We talked a lot about with this bubble and the coronavirus about intuition and some of the math of poker. Um, you you gave one TED talk um, in Manchester before your your bigger your main TED talk about using exact percentages in your real life. Since giving and researching that talk, is that something that you've integrated even more to your life? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a habit that's stuck. You know, when I'm talking to someone and they're asking me if I'm going to meet that, you know, am I going to be on time for a meeting? Um, I will try and give them some kind of like quantified estimation. You know, instead of saying probably, I'll give them like, oh, I think I'm like between 50 and 80% likely to be there at this time and 20% likely to be there at this time. It is a habit that has stuck as much as possible. I mean, I think it's important to you know, what some of the pushback I got from that talk is like, yeah, but if you give too much, sort of, if you're too precise with the percentage that you give, then it gives like the false impression of, of clarity and granularity. Um, and I think that's a very good point. But in general, the issue that we have is that someone's like, yeah, I will probably, I, I'm probably going to achieve that goal. Probably doesn't mean anything. And so you're not actually saying anything meaningful. You're not even like setting a goal to yourself. You need to give some kind of like quantified percentage with, with your prediction. And then what is another cool thing I have been doing is um, at the start of each new year, I'll write like a big long list of predictions, like from stuff in my both my personal life and like world events. So things like at the beginning of last year, I was trying to sell my apartment. So I was like, I will sell my apartment by December 31st, 2019. Um, and then I gave that like a 70% likelihood. I reckon I, would, I was going to sell it by that you know, that that often. And then Bitcoin will be above $10,000. And so basically, just like 50 of these different predictions, each with their confidence levels. And then when the end of the year rolled around, I'd go back and see which ones came true and which didn't. And then what's crucial is that I'm not hoping that all of those came true, because if they were, then I wouldn't have actually been well calibrated. What you're hoping is that like 70% of the 70% has come true, 30% of the 30% is, et cetera. Um, and so you can then like plot them on a graph and, and sort of hopefully that, that graph creates like a nice, you know, perfectly straight line. And that is just a really good way of like testing your general like prediction skills and training yourself to to like really sort of think through why a prediction may or may not come true. And I think that, you know, like it applies to even these like like micro predictions we make in our daily lives. Like I will work out tomorrow. Again, give it a confidence level. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm actually not feeling, I've been pretty lazy lately. Um, I'm going to do my absolute best to go to the gym tomorrow, but I'll, I still only give it like a 70% or something like that. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I think that's important because like if somebody wants to go to the gym, um, and I, I, I have realized this, but I never thought of it in that way. Like I usually like I'm in 80% every time I commit to go to the gym. So therefore, if I want to go four times a week, I always will, will plan to go five, you know, because one of them right. might drop off. Yeah, that's that's perfect. That's that's exactly the kind of thing. And it's 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 just a very it's, it's more, you know, like people say, yeah, but then you're like, aren't you affecting it's, you know, like, it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, but you can even sort of then factor that in as well. But ultimately, like, it, you know, these things, they aren't one, one or zero people seem, you know, it's like the bifurcation fallacy where they think that like because something either happens or it doesn't that it's a 50 50 but that's you know not how things work you know you could say uh if you're rolling a dice a six-sided dice oh well it either comes a one or it doesn't so it's 50 50 like we realize that that's stupid obviously no it's 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 one in six but people seem to think that that they, they forget that that doesn't apply to everything else in life as well so this game that you play in the beginning of the year i like it and instead of resolutions um it how many of these percentages predictions do you do like 50. Ideally, I mean, you want you want a bigger sort of sample size as possible, you know, where in each sort of and I mean, I don't ever do anything more granular than like 20%, 30%, 50%, etc. Like I don't do like 32% or anything like that. Um, but, you know, I, you ideally want to have enough so that you can then like actually look, go back and, and, and have like a meaningful sample in each bucket. So like 50 at a minimum, really. Um, but again, there's like so many categories, you know, you can do sporting events like, oh, I think that you know, USA will win the most Olympic medals. Obviously, not having this year, but you know, had it gone ahead, or um, 
yeah, Germany will win the 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 Euro Football Cup, if that's what's on this year. And then as well as like a bunch of things in your own personal life, like whatever your goals are that you want to achieve. It's a great way of goal setting as well. Or sort of inverse goal setting. You know, if you're if you're trying to lose weight, then, you know, and you want to get down to like under under 180 pounds, you can be like, I I, I think I will be 200 pounds. I give that 20% likelihood, et cetera. So um, there's a way that you can actually come up with a lot once you sort of get on a roll. Good idea for New Year's or for any time if you just want to do it like a six month block. And it, it's not, I, sh- I should be clear, it's not It's not like I didn't come up with this as a, as a concept. I got it from um, one of the best blogs on the internet, slatestarcodex.com. It's a, it's a rationality blog um, written by a, a psychiatrist who's just like one of the best writers I've ever read. And he talks about all sorts of topics, but they're all sort of, under you know they all sort of fall into the rationality category um and uh it's really fascinating and that's it's him that was was doing this as like a new year's resolution and i i just started adopting it um and it's really cool yeah that sounds great i'll I'll put that in the show links i mean the the show notes so you have you have a youtube channel live Bree. um that's the name of the youtube channel and the url of it and you talk about science and math and how you know ignorance of some of the basics of these these fields can result in in catastrophe or just confusion. Um, can you tell us about maybe one of your favorite videos there? I think my favorite one I made was the one on nuclear war and the doomsday clock. And it's not it's not really about the doomsday clock. I just like it, the doomsday clock announcement was coming out, so I sort of timed it to come out with that, just because obviously nuclear war is is a relevant way that we could kill ourselves out of all the different ways that humanity could kill itself. But I just loved that video because it was actually like. The first time I just kind of like I, I did the whole thing myself, all the editing. Um, I don't know. I just I just went a little bit nuts in terms of like creative style and 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 the jokes that I wanted to put in. Because um, before I was trying to like I'm like oh what do I want out of my YouTube channel? Do I want these to be like quite sort of formal science explainers that you could like safely put on the BBC? Uh, that was sort of the direction I originally was starting out. And then I was like, ah, I, the whole point is that this is my channel and I can do, why not be a little bit more offbeat and have my weird humor in there? That's why I like this one so much because I just like, I let rip kind of. Um, but also I think the messaging is just so important. Unfortunate that actually a lot of these other big global issues are now sort of fallen by the wayside because obviously with, with coronavirus taking up everyone's attention and, and, and correctly so. But, you know, like this, this threat like, and, and, and particularly the nuclear war thing is so interesting because it's actually like very game theoretic. Um, you know, what mutually assured destruction is basically just like a, a Nash equilibrium. It's a, it's a very inadequate Nash equilibrium that the, the world is stuck in. And it's kind of like it's a it's a multi-way one because it's, you know, now it's no longer just Russia and uh, or sorry, the USSR and, and the US is in a standoff against one another. There's so many different countries that are, you know, now nuclear powers. It's become a far more complex situation. And I made an analogy between that and actually a game of poker where it's like everyone, you know, the the number of nuclear weapons you have is your chip stack. And players, you know, like as one player increases their number of nuclear weapons, you know, buys more chips, another player like will then be forced to buy more chips because they don't want to have this, you know, they don't want to, the 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 table is really precarious and might fall over and everyone needs to keep it balanced. And yeah, it, it was it was surprising again. Like as always, poker it seems to be the perfect analogy for almost anything in life, and it lent itself really well to explaining this. So yeah, I was just really really proud of that video, and it and it ended up getting a really good reception as well. So I'd recommend if if people wanted to check out any, check out that one. So you do your own writing, your own editing, um, that, and you know, I, 
and you do the obviously the the shooting well somebody else does the shooting mm-hmm. but you are the host as well i i do that i do the shooting as well now um i i one of my earlier a couple of my earlier ones um well, in fact all of my earlier ones were filmed with a like poker stars helped me out with the like water slide one and and those were years ago um but anything that's been made in the last six months has all been uh sort of produced by me i tried to get eagle to be my cameraman but he's not into it Oh, I, I assume that you had some like a friend at least do the camera work. Wow, that's that's really impressive. It's been so fun, like learning how to use a camera properly. Um, you know, I bought this nice camera and had no idea what the hell I was doing. But I've just been like, you know, like it, it, the Internet is so wonderful. You just Google something and you can find out the answer. So it's just been like tons of trial and error. It's also why I've been like producing the videos annoyingly slowly, because like I'll do three hours of shooting and then check the footage and it's absolute crap and then be really annoyed and have to do it again. But, you know, it's, it's sort of trial and error and, and like like figuring out a workflow of like what needs to come first and getting the lighting right and all that. And I, I'm literally in the middle today of, of, of filming a new one. Um, oh, sorry, editing a new one on uh, on like the the false positive paradox, which is like a really cool sort of statistical phenomenon that can happen. And uh, yeah, learning how to use a green screen. Um, but yeah, I love it so much. Like editing is, I, I thought I would hate it. It's it's so fun. You just can lose like twelve hours in a, in a row of just like being sucked into this this editing software where you can just be like playing around with animations and so on. It's it's incredibly fun but very time consuming. So yeah, that's, that's mostly my life at the moment. And do you have any like um, special moments where you feel like you get really good inspiration for like the writing or the concepts? Because obviously that's very different type of brain yeah. work than the editing. Yeah, um, I, I recently, you and I actually we sort of we've moved into a a house with some other people for the first time in, in forever. Uh, you know, it was always just us. Um, but some very close friends like, they were like, look, we're, we're looking to get a new place. Um, do you guys fancy trying out, you know, living the five of us? Um, and the other three, they're all very involved in effective altruism. Like, like they're like legit. One of them is a literal professional philosopher at Oxford University. Um, so as you can imagine, getting ideas is not in short supply. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's very cool just being like, oh, you are the wisest and smartest person I know. Uh, what, what ideas have you been reading about or thinking about lately? And then just having conversations and then something will usually spin off from there. And the ones in the near future I'm going to be working on are going to be sort of related to, more closely related to rationality as opposed to physics. But also to game theory. Like I really want to make one understanding about whether like, you know, like zero sum to positive sum dynamics. Um, because obviously poker is like the, the classic zero sum. Your win is someone else's loss. And then the wider economy is kind of a, it's this strange mixture of both. And that, you know, like when we talk about capitalism, you know, it, like usually the first thing that comes to mind is that that's also zero sum, you know, because you're like competing you know, and if you're in your in your industry, you're competing against your competitors, and if you do better, then they don't do as well, which would be classically zero sum. But at the same time, you're also creating value when you're a company, and that's increasing the size of the pie, which is making a positive sum. And it's like a really interesting thing to like think about how this like plays out to its logical conclusion. And there are certainly some some very smart thinkers who think that like capitalism if left to run its current course will be completely unsustainable on a on a finite planet and so yeah just trying to like think about you know like there's obviously like a lot of chatter in the world about like how you know capitalism is evil or socialism is evil um you know depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on and 
I, I'm trying to like find a way to frame them in in like the, the sort of game theoretic terms and then to try and genuinely find out like is there some kind of combination where the two can work together and and it, in a more sustainable flourishing way so that that won't be one coming anytime soon because it's a really really big topic but uh, that's that's kind of the direction I'm going in that's great and I, I hope you use the um, the chessboard in the background again I saw in your your video about um, the biggest fallacies related to COVID-19. There was this beautiful chess set in the background. So that was a chess set I learned on when I was a kid. That's my dad's, I filmed that down at my dad's a couple of months ago. And uh, yeah, he he, had, he has had this beautiful, heavy marble chess set all, since I've been a kid. And it's, it, it'll be mine one day. And yeah, it's it has very many memories because that's how I learned to play. And my dad would... He, you know, he would obviously go very easy on me, um, but I always remember him saying, well, that, right, that's it. I'm playing full power now. Don't blunder. And that's he's definitely who I got my competitive streak from. Like he 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 hates losing as much as I do. We haven't actually had many chess games here. Interestingly, it's actually quite funny because uh, our, our, our three friends, I guess, being sort of full time philanthropists and philosophers, I think maybe, you know, z- again, zero sum games just don't have quite the same thrill to them as it does to like Igor and I. Um, and they're, they're, it's, it's always quite funny watching the dynamics. Like the three of them will be like, you know, like, oh, well, well done. Well, maybe, maybe try this strategy. And so on. we're like, stop helping each other. That's not how it works. And yeah, it's funny just sort of seeing the different like levels of competitiveness that different people have. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember you and Igor used to be pretty evenly matched, but I feel like you've gotten, like, I remember we played in this, um, team battle with like you da- teaming up with Danny Wrench and you just played so well. And I think you did some work with Lawrence Trent. So have you yeah. have you surpassed Igor to the point that it's no longer interesting to play him? Or has he also been kind of on the um, the chess boat a little bit? Oh, for sure. My chess situation is, is quite a bizarre one in that I am absolutely addicted to three minutes blitz and one minute bullets with both of which with no increments. That's like my guilty pleasure where if I'm like, I've been working and I want to take a break, I'll sit down and play like five bullet bullet games. Um, it's like unbelievably unhealthy as an intellectual pursuit because I'm not actually thinking, obviously. It's just like, it's like a very intuitive, it's almost like a reactionary game. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it's more like just like sitting down and playing Sonic, um, <laughs> but I'm playing chess, um, but I love it. So in that regard, I've gotten better... Um, but I, I'm sure I've picked up like so many terrible bad habits um, because I haven't actually been like studying and you, you know it's, it's almost more like a game of pattern recognition as opposed to like like I still couldn't name you any openings other than the Queen Gambit the Queen's Gambit that is one right yeah yeah no that's good so you play one d four okay good. good like I haven't like learned any of the opening names but I I know them just through like playing so many trial and error games. And then I had a couple of lessons with Lawrence and he was so good, like just giving me like the fundamentals of like, like the key things to think about, you know, things like tempo and, and all these, all these cool, cool terms. For the amount that I've played, I have progressed shockingly little, but I've gained so much pleasure from playing. It's, it really is like my, what I do for relaxation. That's interesting because you're so wrapped up in rationality that you go to chess bullet games, which you're totally right. I mean, I think all your work in this field clearly gives you this um, very clear picture of it, which where a lot of people, it takes them a long time to figure that out. But like the fact that it's pure instinct and pure intuition and it's such like a different way of playing chess. And usually there's that combination and that's what makes chess chess in so many ways that it's like the combination of intuition and brute force thinking and rationality and you have to like marry them. So when you take just the intuitive 
narrative part, it's like it, it's only half of the game. And yeah, that that's very insightful. Um, maybe a, a, a good way for for people to think about um, Blitz and Bullet. I, I also find it to be very addictive, but. It has this aspect missing. I thought it was interesting because when we played this hand and brain match, there's like this element of poker where you're also wondering, you know, what the uh, what your partner is trying to do. And you seem to like be good at that kind of people element to it. Personally, when you talk about chess and poker and zero sum games, you know, something I think about a lot, like if it's all zero sum, then, you know, wasting all this time on it potentially is really bad. So I feel like even if the game itself is zero sum, the culture around it has to be positive sum. So it has to be that you learn so much when you lose that, you know, if you win, you feel glorious. And if you lose, you kind of like learn and feel better. And I know it sounds cliched, but it kind of has to be that way. Otherwise, you shouldn't be playing. Completely agree with you. Um, And I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, poker or chess, you know, in, a, in an individual chess game, in terms of like the rules of moving the pieces and, you know, going turn by turn until there is one victor, that that little system is what is truly zero sum. But the biggest system of the actual players and the experience and everything like that is actually still a positive something because there's other value being added. Like the players enjoy the process of playing. That's why they do it. And so in that regard, you know, that's why it is actually like a, a, there there is additional value being created. You know, there's cognition, you know, brain cells being used for what they've been designed to do, you know, like thinking through fascinating problems. So it's sort of interesting to think about how like even like something as, as black and white zero sum still has has a positive sum element to it and I, and that's again the same with with poker you know even if someone who's an amateur knows that they're a losing player on 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 average they they perhaps they just enjoy the social social side of it so much you know just sitting down and having good conversations with people you know having the thrill of 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 taking some coin flips you know thinking about a problem even though they know they're probably not making as good of decisions as, as their opponents that's still if, if someone gains so much pleasure out of that that's also fantastic um and that's why you know it, there, there can be like still positive takeaways from it um and then on top of that on, on another higher level like the amount of money poker has raised for charity that's presumably making you know adding to the positive sumness of the game and that it's a it's a pursuit that's given people fun and, and learning experiences that has also Yes, it's made individuals, you know, some pros rich and taken money away from people who've paid to play. But on top of that, some of that pie has gone out and actually gone to like really, really good causes um, and it's actually saved lives. So it, there's always like a sort of double edged sword to this stuff. Absolutely. And speaking of, of all that, um, what do you miss most about playing live poker? The thing I miss is the like the old days where it'd be like, you know, like. The old days are like PokerStars Team Pro, like, you know, but like back, you know, back in the good old days um, where, you know, it'd be like us guys, you know, we'd, we'd see each other in, in Bahamas, we'd see each other in Monaco and like, like the community feel of it. You know, there was such like a really tight knit group and, and even like, you know, people who are more acquaintances, just like seeing those familiar faces. It felt very much like going home to family a lot. And I, I you know, I do miss that for sure. You know, like a lot of my old poker friends now I haven't seen in quite a few years, Um, not just from me like retiring, but also like, you know, other people have just moved on to other stuff. Weirdly, though, I I don't miss playing that much. It's it's really strange. Um, I I enjoyed playing that that event, you know, a few months ago um, until I bubbled. But even then, like, I don't know. I don't I didn't get I, you know, I used to be so excited when I would sit down and play a live tournament and I just don't get the butterflies that I used to get. And 
I, I was, I was, I don't know. It, it's, it's strange. I think it's just because when you've just done something so much, it, it sometimes loses its novelty value. I think I do need like a lot of novelty to, for something to stay as, as exciting. So yeah, I'm not sure what it is really. And what do you miss least about it? I mean, yeah, the, just the feeling of busting out, you know, it just got to the point that when like I cashed or had a win, it didn't offset the the downside I felt when I, ca- you know, you, you know, you'd think that like when you've busted, you know, your 200th tournament, over over the years that it would be less painful than busting your your tenth but I, I and it did sort of reach this like minimum but then actually the pain started increasing again weirdly um and i think it's because i wasn't getting the same thrill from just the pure act of playing anymore i think that's what i i guess just like the negative emotion that i would feel that's what i don't miss yeah and that ties into just making sure that the activities you do in your life are are positive some not zero or negative some Exactly. And, 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 and that's what it, it, it like. It kind of become for me for a while. It just became like a negative something, honestly, where I was like, I, I want I, I actually wish I was doing something else. And why am I here doing this? And that's just not a healthy way of being um, in whatever it is you're doing. I think it was just because I reached, you know, the end of my poker journey. I'd been doing it for a really, really long time. Um, it's not it's not any reflection on the game itself. It, it's just it was it's just a reflection on me and, and like the stage of life that I had reached. Well, I, I'm sorry to take up so much of your time, Liv, but I do have two questions from our listeners. Oh. We've got one from Daniel DR who says that, um, who asks rather, um, how many generations, this is a real positive one to end it on, <laughs> how many generations do you think we have left as humans if we stay the course of fossil fuel consumption and capitalism? Oh, man. <laughs> wow, it's a dark question. How many generations? I mean, it, it depends from, it's, it's a very loaded question. Because I'm guessing from the way he's asking, he's talking about purely from like fossil fuels, capitalism, like um, creating climate change. So just purely if we're just talking about the climate change risk, then I mean, it, it, it's it's very, you know, there's still very wide error bars on like how bad it's going to be. Like we, we know it's going to be bad, but the question is, is it going to be like so bad that it's going to wipe out everybody? That seems pretty unlikely. Like there will be, you know, there will, humanity will survive. It just might not be as, in, in anywhere near as good a shape. And a lot of people will die if left. I, I don't know, like with that on average, let's say two to three more generations um, just from that. But then if you factor in, no, actually, no, it's probably more than that. It's probably like five to six on average. But if you factor in all the other risks from other things like, you know, nuclear war or some other kind of like novel new weapon that gets built and there's some kind of arms race, um, that's that's a mounting risk. And then there's like other types of sort of like environmental degradation and so on. I still think humanity is a favorite to make it. That's the thing. But it's just like, how stressful will it be over the coming century? I think by the end of the century, it's going to be pretty stressful. Um, that's, that's all I'll say. But if you want to read more about that stuff, what I would recommend, if you the, the best book on this topic is a book that's just come out called The Precipice um, by Toby Ord. I can send you a link, a link to include in the show notes as well. Um, that talks about all of these different sort of risks to humanity from like various like, you know, our current systems to to other like emerging technologies and, and natural naturally occurring things, even things like asteroids and stuff. Um, it talks about all of these different risks in a really, really quantified level way. So I check that out. Yeah. And I actually did not want to end on that question. No, let's talk about something positive. There is one one that's a lot more fun, although it is, it's great to hear, hear your thoughts on that as you know, we do need to take this stuff seriously and be as informed as we can. So I will include that book, The Precipice. Um, um, Paul D. Lane asks, if physics time travel is theoretically possible, 
um, and you could time travel into the past, where would you go and what is the one thing you would change? Ooh. Or just where would you go, even if you didn't want to change anything because yeah. of like butterfly effect stuff? Yeah, exactly. I think ch- the, the changing the thing is it, changing anything is 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 really really dangerous because then like would I then exist? You know, there'd be like all these like cont- continuity loop problems and stuff. But if I like anywhere, I'd like to just go and see. I'd love to have seen um, ancient Egypt, like the pyramids. You know, it's still it's still one of the biggest mysteries, right? It seems to have been established how how they were built, but there's so much weird thinking around it and there's a lot of conspiracy theories and so on so I you know I'm genuinely curious I'd like I would love to go back and actually just see them being built and, and see what actually happened yeah I think that'd be pretty cool no I've never been I'd love to go yeah for sure well Liv this has been awesome I I love the hand you brought to us a7 off and all of your your um, insights into um, the world now, past, future, um, your YouTube videos at Livery. Everybody should definitely sub to that channel. And you always update us with your, your new videos and sometimes some bonus features on your Twitter and Instagram, right? For sure. Yes. Thank you. And those are also at Livery. Yes, just at uh, Liv underscore Bree, yeah. Great, great. Thank you so much, Liv. It's been awesome. It's really just great to catch Thank up you, with you. Jen. Yeah, it's been it's been such a long time. Um, stay safe and well. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Liv Barie, EPT champion, WSOP champion, and now famous speaker and YouTube host and creator. Um, follow her at Liv underscore Barie on Twitter and Instagram and check out her channel. A7 off, clicked off, a wonderful hand from the great. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No. Oh.